Welcome to the RLSS UK podcast channel. This is episode number 11. And today's guest is Jane Nickerson, Chief Executive of Swim England. Jane is going to be speaking to us about her journey to becoming Chief Exec, leading through a pandemic and her hopes and aspirations for 2021 and beyond. So hi, Jane. Thank you for joining us. Um, for the benefit of RLSS UK members, please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ultimately became Chief Executive of Swim England. Hi, Robert. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you and your colleagues today. Um, how did I become Chief Executive of Swim England? That's a big, big question. I never intended to be. I started off my life um, really having left university, not knowing what on earth I wanted to do in my life. Trained as a teacher and knew that that was the last thing on earth I wanted to do. And literally walked through the door of a hotel and said, can I have a job, please? That hotel was an 800 bedroomed conference hotel. And I started there as a receptionist, speaking some languages and just really enjoying interfacing the public, but soon became one of their management trainees. So I ended up many years in that hotel trade and ended up being the front of house manager that dealt with the whole of the reception and um, reservations, housekeeping, all the front side of it. And I loved it. I absolutely loved that role. It taught me um, lots about working with people and it taught me lots about the intermediacy of things because if you don't sell a hotel room tonight or a hotel dinner tonight, you can't sell it tomorrow. It's gone. So you have that one opportunity to fill and sell. So that, that was my background, really. Swimming was always my hobby. I was a swimmer, swam all my life um, to a national standard and then did masters at European standard and was a British team manager. So very involved in the volunteering side of swimming, district secretary, things like that. And then the hotel trade went a bit pear-shaped for me because the hotel company was bought out by somebody who just cleared out all their senior management. This was at a time when swimming was looking to move from Swim England, that point in the USA, had about five employees. And they wanted to grow and they wanted the delightful term of head of administration. Applied for the role just on the off charts and got it and literally worked my way through. So administration roles, um, operations roles, deputy chief exec roles, always saw myself as the number two, as being the one person who made things happen, um, very into detail, very into planning, making sure things happened. And then we went through, well, David, um, semi-retired, moved on to British Swimming Only, went out and got another chief exec, and that only lasted a couple of years. And I thought, you know what, this is ridiculous. I might as well just go for it and be done with it. So I went for the role of CEO, got it, and I absolutely love it. And I think I've had to learn that balance now between not doing all the doing. Um, as an operations person, you do the doing. I've had to learn to let go and trust a lot more and empower a lot more. But I'm absolutely loving being the one that, that leads the organisation along with the board to take it to wherever we're going. Jane, how how long how long ago have you, how, how long have you been the chief exec? How, what sort of the time scale are we looking at? It's coming up to three years. Well, I did interim for a while, so it's coming up to three years, including yeah. the interim part. Yeah. yeah. So were you involved in the? Was it? Would you call it a rebrand from ASA to Swim England? And do you know what the history of that was? 
Yeah, I took over Chief Exec on the very day we rebranded formally from ASHS from England. So I'd been working on that in the background. It took us a long while to change because we were the ASA, a bit like the FAs to football. Um, and a lot of intelligence told us that people had a lot of heritage, a lot of privilege in that name, and we didn't want to lose it. But it wasn't modern enough. It didn't say what we are. And eventually we did get the permission to change this from England. The Amateur Swimming Association is still our formal legal name. And occasionally, because we are allowed to use the um, official heraldic emblem, uh, so we do use that every now and again, just because we are one of the few organisations can use that royal standard. Okay, cool. And um, just out of interest, what was your uh, stroke? What were you? What were you? Uh, were you an all-rounder, or did you have a specialism? I was a sprint breaststroker. But whenever you're a breaststroker, they try and make you do medley because it's the one stroke that really pulls you through on an individual medley. And I was just so rubbish at fly, it was hilarious. So I used to end up really far back. Backstroke is my second stroke, so start to catch up. Breaststroke overtake, and then just either clung on or drop back on the freestyle, depending on the mood of the day, really. So, and, yeah, and what was your local pool? Where did you used to go swim? Coventry, City of Coventry Swimming Club. And um, are you still swimming now? Obviously, when, when pools are open and... I was swimming before they kept shutting the door on me, yes, yes. I must admit, I didn't do very much between the two lockdowns. I, I, I was a little bit reluctant to go back um, while I was still working from home and semi-shielding and things like that. It made it difficult for me to go back in between the two lockdowns. But uh, the minute they opened the door again, I should be elbowing everybody out of the way and get back in there. <laughs> Hopefully there'll uh, be a big queue behind you as well. I think a lot of people are uh, chomping at the bit to get back into the water, which is great. And uh, hopefully we can talk a bit, little bit more about that uh, when we look forward to the rest of 2021. Just for the benefit of our members, I think most of um, our organisation will be uh, acutely aware of what Swim England does. But just for those that maybe don't know so much, could you just give us an overview of the organisation and what it's responsible for? Yeah, we, we are quite different to a lot of national governing bodies of sport because on top of doing what I would say the traditional sport things, which in itself is complicated because it's five different sports when you think of diving, water polo, swimming, open water swimming um, and artistic swimming. But we also um, have our Learn to Swim programme, so we, we set the Learn to Swim pathway that most people use in this country, the whole framework for that. We do a lot on workforce development, so we have our own training college, which is the Institute of Swimming, which does the training for swimming teachers and coaches. And we have our own awarding organisation, which is Swim England Qualification. And so that's quite different to a lot of NGBs. And then on top of that, we do a lot of political lobbying and engagement, more than ever at the moment. Massive partnership engagement, because we don't own our own facilities. So everything we do revolves around being able to get access to water. Um, lots on facility advice and guidance, so when anybody's building a swimming pool, they will come to my team for advice and guidance. Obviously all the membership stuff, so we have just under 200,000 members um, to look after those. Event staging, and then we underpin all of this with insight, research, communications. Um, 1,500 clubs and swim schools in our membership looking after those, but we also try and look after the wider 
family of swimmers, people that just go recreational swimming, over water swimming, things like that, we, we want to, to deal with them. And I think our position really came to the fore during this period when we were very instrumental in working with government on the guidance to get the swimming pools back open again. So that wasn't just around sport, that was literally around everything we were doing to make the swimming pool a safe place for people to go back to. Great. And and um, how do you work with the other devolved nations? So Wales, Scotland, Ireland, Northern Ireland. How does that all merge together? Yeah, well, Ireland's very different. So we don't work closely with Ireland um, because in swimming senses, islands swim together as Ireland. It's the island of Ireland, if you like. The only time that they split between North and South is for the Commonwealth Games. So they're a federation of their own, not part of the United Kingdom, not part of British swimming. Um, so we have a liaison with them, but not that close connection. Scotland and Wales and England are the three members of British swimming. So we work very closely together. So the chief execs of Scotland and Wales and British swimming and myself meet. Normally, it's probably four or five times a year. During COVID, it's been once a month, every six weeks. Great, and I guess you must have had uh, a lot of different conversations because one of the uh, interesting things about the way the government's working currently is that each in, in devolved nation has been able to make its own decisions about swimming pools and when they can reopen and, and when people can get back into the water. So I guess that's made the whole landscape very complex as a, as a UK uh, entity and trying to collaborate as it as it. Has it worked okay? Or? It's, it's made it challenging, but what's happened is we can help each other more because if we have guidance that then they can use in Scotland to try and persuade Scot the Scottish Parliament to open up and things in, in Wales, we use our intelligence together to provide the same advice across the entire United Kingdom, but to then make the points in each of the devolved nations. So it's actually been quite helpful to each other, I think, in a lot of ways. Great. So um, if you don't mind, cast your mind back to March 2020. Um, just just talk us through how that was for for you individually and how uh, what decisions you had to make as an organisation and, and obviously trying to manage the last, what is it, 14? Well, it's coming up to nearly a year, isn't it? Um, how how's how's that journey been for you, Jane? Uh, it's certainly been interesting. Um, from a personal point of view, I'm a very optimistic person, and it was interesting that back on February the 11th, I had lunch with my brother-in-law, who is very well read and very pessimistic, and told me about this virus that was going to come in from China. February the 11th, remember the date. And I went, yeah, well, you said that about avian flu, you said that about SARS, it's absolutely fine. You know, and he went, no, this one is going to be serious, absolutely serious, Jane. This would change the world. Yeah, 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 you'll say that. Dinner, lunch, rather, and off we went. I have to hand it to him. He was absolutely right that time. Um, I thought it would end by September, if I'm honest, in March. I just, for some reason, I don't know why, I thought we'd need to get through We'll get through the summer, the weather's nice, it will be okay. By September, the pools will start to open and we'll be fine. And that didn't happen. And that was a bit of a body blow in a way that 
I then went through a phase of thinking, is this ever going to change? Is Have I got to now find a way of living with this forevermore because it's not going to change? And then realised, well, yes, it will, but we are going to have Groundhog Day. This is going to keep repeating a pattern on and off, on and off, on and off that we're going to have to deal with. So we had to make some massive decisions. Our trading position is really important to us. So we, we make money out of education and we make money out of award sales, reward sales and our membership. There are three strongest lines of income. Our Sport England funding pre-COVID was 18% of our turnover, which is very different for a lot of other NGBs, only 18%. And even that was used primarily for programmes that we agreed with them. And we were supporting those programmes every year by a million and a half pounds. So a massive amount of money we were putting into the programmes that Sport England were funding. But when the door shut, our trading income stopped, literally stopped overnight. So there no award sales, there's no education income, bits and pieces of e-learning, but nothing else, a whole lot went. Home. Membership, we had had our membership money, we collect that in the spring. We collect that January to, to, February, to the end of Feb. So we'd got that in the bank, thank goodness. So cash flow wise wasn't too bad, but we weren't sustainable. We'd suddenly gone completely unsustainable. And as a charity, we don't mass money and have it in the bank. The more money we make, the more we spend because we're about doing. You'll understand that. It's what you do, not what you sit on. So we had to make some tough decisions. We downsized by 30%. So we've lost some really, really good team, team members. That broke my heart, if I'm honest, from a personal point of view, because over my two years up to that point, we had really focused on the culture of the organisation and changing the ethos of the organisation to revise culture to the point where we got ourselves into the Sunday Times top 100 not-for-profit or charities to work for, which to us was a huge, huge thing. That wasn't sport, that was all companies. So we felt we'd turn that and then to have to suddenly say to 70 odd people, you haven't got your job and put the others out of risk as well and make them go through that awful, awful process of applying for their own jobs, basically. So that was a horrible time. Got through it. We've got a great team now. We have to build that ethos back up again because they're now working from home and they're all on short time working as it is. Most people are on 80%, but not all. Some people are on much less than that. So it's really tough for people. So that's been one of the big casualties, I think, of this. We're also sold back two floors of Sport Park. We have four floors at Sport Park. We had an agreement with the university that any time we could sell back um, all or part of the building. And we've, I mean, we've still got them at the moment because it's an extended notice period, but those two floors will go back. Um, that will see us through, providing we can get enough membership income in. And the sooner pools open again, the sooner we can start making money again. We proved we could. One of the big lessons for me between the two lockdowns was that we could turn back on the revenue generating tap, that people did want to become swimming teachers, people did want to buy the awards, and the income started to flow again until the door slammed again. So we know we can do it. We just need to get the doors open. And then there'll be a period of rebuilding and consolidation before we can start really activating again. Cool. I'd, I'd, I'd never realised that actually you got such a, I mean, it's it's not an insignificant amount, but the, the, in terms of percentages that you didn't get more as an NGB, um, 
so so yeah I'd, and and i completely empathize with everything you've just said because like us um you know 95 percent of our income comes from the leisure sector and swimming pools uh, and training lifeguards and um obviously we had exactly the same situation that uh, literally it was like turning the lights off and and how we're going to cope one of the things i've, I've and i've talked to uh, an, a few chief execs during these podcasts and, and everybody's gone through that same um anxiety worry stress about having to change their organization uh, and adapt how, how has it been for you uh, personally and, and what have you learned about the role and about yourself over the last year? Um, I've always felt I've been resilient and I think that's come out in bucket loads now. <laughs> I think it has to be and I'm optimistic. I always tell two stories about my resilience. So I put it down to my upbringing and down to my mother rather than my father. My mother was extremely resilient and there was two instances. One when I was with a swimming team in Athens and there'd been an earthquake and we were getting aftershocks she was staying with my sister and phoned her and we were literally in the middle of this thing where the building was shaking and everything was happening and the phone line was going a bit dodgy. But we could still hear, I could hear her perfectly, but she couldn't hear me. And my sister said to her, it's my phone mum, if you go and use the upstairs phone, you'll hear her, she'll be fine. And my mother's words were, no, she's having an earthquake, she'll phone back when it's over. And that's been my life, really. And then the other one was I was with my mother in the Bahamas when Hurricane Andrew struck that just devastated Florida. And it came over the Bahamas and we were forced into this underground banqueting room all night while the hurricane was raging outside. My mother demanding to go to bed and the man refusing to let her out, which is quite fun all night. Eventually let us out in the morning, palm trees, houses upside down and everything. And I'm going, I still don't know I had to be there all night. So I said, well, she said, look, our room is fine. I said, we haven't got a loo, a, a roof on the on the loo, on the bathroom, mum. She said, well, the bedroom's fine. <laughs> so, you know, wow. resilience in bucket loads, I think, has helped me get through. I am an optimist. Um, and I think, I think my voluntary work helps because uh, on a volunteer basis, I'm a Samaritan and I still do that every week. Okay. And during the sort of semi-shielding times when I wasn't going out, I did um, a Samaritan line for the NHS workers from home. So we did a special one from that. And it just grounds you. You just realise that you might feel you're struggling on this side and the other, but you're not going through anything compared to some people. So it just puts my feet firmly back on the ground again. And there will be a future. There will be. Yeah, 100%. And uh, so the moral of the story is don't go near you when there's a natural disaster about to uh... <laughs> okay. <That's... laughs> um Tell me, that you obviously talked about yourself, which is great, but what, what have you learned about the organisation that maybe you didn't know prior prior to this? Um, I, think I, I think it's consolidated what I did know, that we have a team of people who really work together to get through things and will support each other through it. And that's really, really come to fruition now that departments continue to work together. The, the two things that really surprise me is they hate being on furlough. They want to be working. And that's not on money. It's nothing to do with money. Even when we were topping up to 100 percent at one point, they wanted to be at work. They wanted to be part of it. And that, to me, really made my heart sing in a way that it's just so nice they wanted to be. And 
we'd got to a point over the two years of having very defined implementation plans for the entire organisation so everybody knew where they fitted in, where their piece of work impacted with somebody else's and it all pulled together. And because we haven't got that at the moment, we're sort of literally just saying, just give some money, we can't do this. I want a plan. I want my plan. I want, I, I want to know where I fit in with this. And it shows to me that everything we'd embedded into the organisation still stands and will come back. And I think I've learned that they will bounce back, we will, because they, they want to carry on as we were and actually resentful that they can't. And it's not about spending money, it's about that whole thing of doing and doing it together. And and, and would you say that um, you've adapted and, and possibly changed the way that you might do things? Yeah. Um, going forward that stuff that you you'll have to keep I, i've talked to a few people who specifically technology and using teams and all of this remote working working from home all of those things what what are the sort of the, the nuggets of things that you've picked up that you you potentially will keep going with yeah one of the biggest things i think we'll keep going with is our ability to interact with lots of people in one go so particularly for my business engagement team, who in the past sort of had to have gone out and spoken to you one day, somebody else the next, somebody else the next, can actually get everybody together and talk to a whole range of people. And it's working really well with pool operators, pool providers, because they realize they're not actually in competition with each other. They actually can help each other. So we go on with certain topics onto a, a group of 1900 people. And in the chat, they're all supporting each other as well as giving us the information we need or vice versa. So we won't stop doing that. We won't stop reaching out to, to being able to meet big groups all in one go regularly. Um, I doubt I'll ever be jumping on trains for a one hour meeting anymore up in Manchester or London. But having said that, some face to face is really important as well. So I think there needs to be a blend of that. But there's no point just for half an hour meeting, which is what we used to do very often, then try and wrap other things around it. Um, did you did you have uh, people from working from home prior to this? Was that embedded within your business model, or is this something new? No, we did. Most of our field staff worked from home, and we also have flexible working for those who needed it anyway. But the one thing I think we've massively learned through this is that before, people who worked in sport part were one group, and people who worked externally didn't really feel they belonged as much. And now everybody's spread everywhere. Everybody feels the same. And I want to keep that. I don't want to go back to that's that group and everybody else doesn't feel they belong as much. So I need to try and find some way of keeping that um, sense of one team across field workers and office workers. I also think we will allow a lot more flexible working. People are now saying to me, actually suits me to work um, early and late and have some time off in the middle for various reasons and I don't see any reason why we can't keep that up forever more to be honest. Cool, some some really positives hopefully to take out of what has been a, a yeah. pretty dreadful experience for, for a lot of us. So it, it, just going through the the roller coaster ride that was 2020 so obviously pools were allowed to reopen I think from the 4th of July and then um, we had the tier system, which meant that depending on what, well, in that case, I think most women pools were allowed to open regardless of what tier they're in. And then we came back into lockdown. Is that is that 
Is that yeah, well, we didn't get the 4th of July, if you remember. That was when the pubs were allowed to open. We expected to be open on the 4th of July, and we weren't. We weren't in that. So that's when we went out, all guns blazing on the media everywhere, and then got open two weeks later. So we were open towards the end of July in the pools. Um, and then it went into tier systems, and that in itself caused a lot of, of unrest. And some of the rules for tier systems in the pre-lockdown three time were just bonkers. Like if you're 18, you can't do activity in a group. So for us, that meant our 18-year-olds couldn't go into their club training session. But they could go swimming in public sessions. So what, what a lot of them were doing was literally getting a lane at the same time as their club session and just swimming in the lane next to it. Some enterprising operators allowed them to do that. I just said, why? And in the end, I, I asked the question of government, why? Why have you made this rule? Because it just is nonsensical. They are going swimming. They just, why? Oh, because 18 year olds will all go out and socialise afterwards. So I so, said, well, that's a generalisation about a group of people doing something socially that's not about somebody who's training right left and center who just wants to go swimming go home eat and sleep because they're going to get up again the next day and where are they going to socialize anyway because the pubs are shut <laughs> so, so it was just and these are the things we're trying to combat now is if we do come back out of lockdown into a tiered or a different way of easing out of lockdown they don't put in rules that are just completely bonkers. They're just a nonsensical. How do you think the sector as a whole responded to the pandemic and the challenges that it faced? Do you think there's anything that could have been done differently or, you know, looking back, lessons kind of learned from this experience? I think we're too fragmented. I don't think have that one unified voice that can make the difference um, and that's I would say that's the leisure sector as a whole there that is just doesn't go out with one voice we we went out very hard on things we were trying to get the same messages we were sharing messages with people um, but everybody was trying really hard but we weren't joined up we weren't particularly joined up um, we tried in lots of little ways to try, but by then it's probably too late. It probably needed hindsight's great, isn't it? But just one body at the outset. And you could argue that should be UK Active because they manage indoor leisure effectively, but they just got a bit stuck on gyms in a way at that point. Yeah, and and and, and I wholeheartedly agree. I think I think in originally, and and I think the the sectors moved a massive way forwards. Because it had to, because I think my personal opinion is they were a little bit slow off the mark and we never really did enough to promote how safe swimming was. You know, the the, the um, stuff around the fact that um, a good chlorinated swimming pool was probably one of the safest environments, um, arguably anywhere, and, and actually swimming was safe and all the mental health benefits and everything. And I know you were... You were doing a great job of promoting swimming per se, but I, I agree. I think what this has done is brought the sector more closer together to raise the profile of how important it is. And I think when we came out of lockdown and the fact that when the tier system was introduced that swimming pools and leisure centres were still allowed to open regardless of what tier was, 
for me demonstrated the real impact that people like you had made to be able to to in effect i think convince government that actually no matter what happened we were more important than um and i don't mean this in to say that hospitality is important because you know i come from a hospitality background it's incredibly important but in terms of mental health fitness well-being for the nation leisure swimming should be at one of the forefronts of those uh, sectors that needs to be considered first as a priority in my opinion would you agree with that I, I totally agree because this is about fitness it's about fitness of the nation being fit enough to actually manage covid should they get it and their recovery from covid and everything else and i love well like you i come from hospitality i love it and i love going out to a nice restaurant and to eat and drink and be social but it's harder to manage that environment as well than it is to manage the pool and the indoor leisure environment because once alcohol is involved obviously inhibitions do slip and it's a harder job to do it i actually think the purpose and restaurants i went to in between lockdowns did a jolly good job at it i thought they were superb at it um, and i think they have proved they can do it as well but it is a much harder environment and the spilling out of purpose and all the rest of it is much harder to deal with when you're trying to stop crowds you don't spill out of swimming pools in the same way or at a gym so yeah, I, I agree. And I think I think actually the hospitality sector, what they did do was lobby government extremely well. And I think a lot of organisers, a lot of other sectors have learned quite a lot from that, um, which is great because I think it, it it's something that should continue and needs to continue from this point forward, because I think there is a certain momentum there to to raise a profile. And you've probably seen Sport England's new strategy the 10-year strategy which is all about you know the, the the well-being of the nation and getting everybody fit and active which is something i think we're all signed up to i think we've all got to be sensible if we're going to come out of this we could all enjoy everything if we applied common sense to it and understood that we do need to step back from people until the vaccination's gone everywhere and everybody's they feel it's working but we could all do everything if we did it all a bit more gently and did and did respect each other's space. Uh, I think the problem is everybody crowds in to celebrate we're out of here and that's human nature. So, so let's try and look forward then. How do you see, and this is, you know, nobody's got a, um, uh, a, a looking glass or a, a crystal ball, as it were, but how do you... How do you see 2021 shaping up and what are your hopes and aspirations for for what's coming in the future rather than having to still manage what's happened in the past? I would like to see a lockdown easing that allows us to get back to some sort of normality and stay there, however gradual that is, rather than this, oh, it's open, oh, it's shut, oh, it's open, oh, it's shut, because that doesn't help anybody. I don't think mentally, physically, it certainly doesn't have the industry and things. If the roadmap requires a gentle easing and a testing of each section before you move to the next, I could go with that if I felt the end game was right. What I can't do is, is I can't manage if people are making decisions, I can't see the rational logic for it. So if the roadmap next week went, oh, schools are staying closed, pools are staying closed, pubs are all open, I'll be going, really, what? So for me, it's about opening things in the right way. 
testing it as they go along, reintroducing people back into society gently so they don't go completely bonkers. <laughs> and, you know, from our point of view, from a, a, you know, if they open all the beaches this summer, that could be really scary, couldn't it? If people can't go on their plane to the Mediterranean, they're all heading down to Bournemouth and just slamming on the beach and not knowing what on earth they're doing in riptides and that, couldn't it help us this summer? So I'd like to see a general easing that we can get back to a form of normality by being respectful. And that way we could open our pores, we could bring back our income, we could start to do more, but managed in a managed way. Yeah, 100%. And I, I suppose one of the things that will be interesting to see in, in the roadmap is if they've considered some of the challenges that you and I would have faced last year when they, um, you know, the government gave very little notice, for example, about opening beaches and it being safe to go swimming in the sea or in your local lake or reservoir. And and I think that was uh, a challenge for us because all of a sudden we had to ramp up and get water safety messaging out there and make sure people did that in a really safe way as much as possible. And also giving the sector enough notice to be able to reopen and re-energise pools and and do all of the things that they needed to do to make them safe. And in many ways, probably a lot of that is already in the pipeline and people have already gone through that process. But hopefully some notification rather than, right, you're opening tomorrow would be uh, would be welcome. <laughs> it must be impossible for them because if you're working at that whole strategic level and you're not drilling down into each individual subsector in a way, you're not going to understand the nuances of it. And probably some of it shows... like that um, I think that's that's been probably not been understood or or even recognized at that sort of level it's only when suddenly either it's not there or it's being stretched by you know ten times the number of people on it the people are like, oh gosh maybe we should have the beaches aren't just something that that you can just go to whenever you like there is some protocols here that needs to be put in place to open up and I, I don't blame them for not understanding that level of detail because We've just done it, haven't we, as a sector? We've just done it, like many other sectors have just done things. And why would government understand all the issues that goes into it? <laughs> so, Jay, how long do you think it's going to take for us to get back to, and I use the word advises, normality, because I'm not sure we'll ever go back to possibly how it was prior to 2019 for, for quite a while, but... How long do you think it's going to take before your organisation and organisations in this sector can start to breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief and say, actually, you know, it's over and we can now start to plan? I think it could take the whole of this year, to be honest. I mean, I'm not saying in this state for the whole of this year, but I think it would be such a gradual coming out and understanding that our planning will evolve rather than a, right now we can really set a scene out. And I just get the feeling we've probably got to test another winter to make sure there isn't that spike again in the winter, that it doesn't, that, that we have nailed the big, big numbers of this virus by winter so that we don't have to slam doors shut again. So I think it'd be an evolve, evolving year. And I'd like to think that during that year we can rebuild, restock and prepare and start making those inroads into total recovery. I think we used to talk about emergence um, and I think this year will be a year of emergence. 
And uh, what positives w- will you take from this experience and, and keep with you and take forward on a, on a personal level, but also for, for your organisation? I think for the organisation, it will prove that if we get through this um, financially, it will prove that our financial model is absolutely right for a non-pandemic year. <laughs> that we were, we were making money and using it right wisely. I think there is an interesting thing that I will probably be more challenging with my team about what we spend money on in the future, even when we've got money again. Because when I went through the the list of things that we were planning to do and things like that, and now I'm saying, are we still going to plan those for next year or whenever? And probably not now. So was it that important then? So I'll probably be more challenging on that. But I think I would like to let my innovative people really have a free reign when we get some going because they have some cracking projects that we're going to go on that they've had to mothball. So a thing I've learned from them is keeping them motivated during this time because they can't do that sort of great innovation. But now allowing them to look a little bit further afield, looking a bit over the horizon into what they want to take out mothballs, what they want to move forward on and where we can really make a difference in the future and there's some exciting things that we can do so i think i've learned that i have to manage the team in different ways i have to lead those who are the futuristic ones with some hope of there will be some futuristic work to do great thank you very much and um one final question if i may um I'll give you a little bit of a time just to, to think about this but what's the best thing about being a chief executive of Swim England? It's, it was my hobby. It was my my thing I did since I was eight years old. So who gets to lead the organisation that is their absolute passion and hobby? <laughs> Best thing, isn't it? It's, it's my hobby, it's my passion. I love the people in it. I Even the bad days, even the bad days where you just feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall, it's my passion and hobby, so I love it. Great, that's a really important message. Um, don't get stuck in a job that you don't enjoy because uh, it takes up an awful lot of your life and uh, you have to do something that you feel passionate about. So thank you, that's great. Um, thank you very much, Jane. That's probably all of my questions for today. Thank you for taking the time to spend with me and just talking through um, the challenges that you faced and hopefully the optimism and and um, the future of uh, Swim England and everything for the sector is is rosy and there is a lot of positives to look forward to. Uh, we feel, I feel like we're sort of almost on the cusp of change and with the vaccination and, and everything that's happening, it feels like there's a real momentum to, to, uh, to get everything back to how it was before, so which is great. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, remember that all our podcasts are available on uh, the podcast channel through Apple, Spotify and Google. Uh, if you're not already, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And in next week's episode, uh, I'll be speaking to Hugo Tagholm, who's the chief exec of Surfers Against Sewage. Um, and also I'll be having a conversation about how he's led his team through the pandemic and what are his plans for 2021.